Welcome to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. At First Baptist Church, our vision is to be people deeply rooted in the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, who then reach out into our neighborhood, city, and the world as we live and share the good news. Here is this week's Rooted and Reaching message from FBC Charlottetown. Thank you, team. Both up here, up front, and you up back for working to lead us today into the presence of the Lord. I really like talking about the college. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come and be with you today. For some of you, when you see a guest preacher come in, especially if it's from a missions organization or a partner organization, you could be like, oh boy, here we go. Well, I'll make you this promise. I already talked about the college. And as much as I like talking about the college, and I could talk about it all day, I like talking about Jesus more. So I want to spend this time diving into his word, focusing on it. I, I have to admit, I, I had a little twinge this morning because I don't know if you've been watching the FIFA Women's World Cup, but the final was this morning. Don't say anything. I have not watched it. I was driving. I was tempted to tune in, but I did not. And as a person of Scottish heritage, any chance to root against England is a good day. (laughs) I'm going to watch it later. Don't say anything. But in following the Women's World Cup, and really in all the sports, when commentators talk about one team against another, we often talk in the phrase of, oh, well, Spain is standing in the way of England, you know, clinching the title or standing in the way of it. It's a way we talk about a lot of things. Anytime we talk about issues in our lives, problems, opportunities, challenges we might face at a church, we talk about what's standing in our way. And I want to look at a story, and a story, an account from Scripture today, where there was something standing in the way for one young man. I want to read for you this passage of Scripture. I, I don't know if it's your tradition to do this or not here, but as I read Scripture, you just join me in standing in the presence of God. Would you do that with me? Standing, doing this might be weird to you, but thank you for humoring me. Reading from the book of Mark, chapter 10, starting at verses 17 to 22, this is what the gospel writer says. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, and said, Good teacher. He asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you should not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. 
he went away sad because he had great wealth. Father, in these moments, we open ourselves to you, our attention, Lord, help us. Give us the ears to hear what you would have to say to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit. We recognize your presence today, Lord. Lord, loose my lips, let my words be your words. We dedicate this time to you. Come, O Spirit, come. Amen. Grab a seat. A little while ago, I, I get to the privilege of visiting a lot of churches, talking about the college, recruiting people to ministry, raising the finances for support and scholarship. I'm talking about the college. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm sorry. Um, one of the things I decided to do was, a long time ago, was to talk uh, about money, because I, I work with finances a lot. And I decided, wouldn't it be great as I go to church to church as I do, because I don't get the chance to speak in a sermon series or that sort of thing, to have my own series that I just do personally, and maybe I'll speak on every passage on money in the Bible. I hadn't realized when I said that, though, that there are over 2,350 verses in the Bible about money. It might take me a while. Jesus talks a lot about money. 15% of what Jesus spoke about was about money or possessions. 16 out of the 38 parables, this is for all you number people, 16 for thir- out of 38 parables deal with money. And the only thing that Jesus talks about more than money is the kingdom of God. This is his second favorite subject. But why? Why does Jesus, why does Scripture spend so much time focusing on money? There's two reasons. One is that money reveals our true selves. When I go to visit a new church, I mean, yeah, I look at your website. But if I want the real story of a church, I read your tax returns. I'd read your budget if you put it online. Most churches don't, but I enjoy it because it shows us where our priorities really are, the way that we use our money collectively or individually. The second thing about money is that we have to remember is that money is not passive. Money affects us. The Bible tells us the more that we have, the more that it affects us. And in this passage today, this rich young ruler, as he's called in some of the other Gospels, money was what was standing in his way. And today, as we kind of walk through this, I want you, I I want to invite you to ask the Spirit, not if money is affecting you and your relationship with Him, but how. In what way? Because I think for all of us, it is a constant struggle. It is a constant part of our life that we must pay attention to and to always weigh how we are spending our money. What is our relationship with money? Who are we serving? And so this morning, we, as we look at this, I really want to look at this kind of as three acts, three scenes in a movie. The introduction where Jesus and the man meet each other the request that is made, and then Jesus' reply. Now, this is recorded in the Gospels in all, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Anytime you find a passage of Scripture that's in multiple Gospels, that's a flag for you to say, this is important. If all three of them are recording it, it must be important. In Mark, I like the account of Mark. I like Mark because it's short and to the point, and the Greek is really easy. Um, Mark comes to this section revealing who Jesus is. Mark's been kind of teasing it all the way through the book about who is this Jesus. 
And this, this account happens just before Jesus turns to Jerusalem on his way to the cross. And as Jesus has gone in the ten chapters leading up to it, Jesus had met people over and over and over again, all of whom found healing and faith and salvation in him. And so we meet this young man who comes to Jesus, runs to him, and says he wants to follow Jesus, throws himself down, and says, what must I do? And we as a reader are kind of tempted, kind of baited by Mark to believe that this guy is going to find what he is looking for. He seems to have everything going for him. He wanted to follow Jesus. There was a desire to do that. He was young. If you just read the passage before this in your Bible, Jesus spends the time saying, bring the children to me. Nobody enters the kingdom of God except as a child. And all of a sudden, we're introduced to this young, rich ruler who runs up to the master and says, what must I do? It seems like the perfect example of how we are supposed to live our life in a childlike, faithful way. He's rich. Now, we, I want to just spend a second on this because this is very important, and it's a little bit hard maybe for us here today to understand the significance of that. To the first century Jewish community, wealth was an agreed-upon sign that God loved you. Now, I believe this is contrary to what Scripture actually teaches, but this was the belief and, and honestly, some of the teaching of some rabbis at the time. The, the thought was, if you follow the law, if you are a good person, that the Lord will bless you. But they understood that blessing not in a wide context like Jesus taught when he says, blessed are the poor, but in a financial way. And we encounter this other places in Scripture. Health was viewed the same way. If you were healthy, that was seen as a blessing from God, and it is. But they saw it as a direct one-to-one correlation of to figure out who amongst them was the holiest. And we run into this place. Remember the story where uh, Jesus went to heal somebody, and, and they saw who sinned, him or his father? Right? They assumed that there was sin in this person's life because he was sick. It worked the same way with the finances. And maybe if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes that kind of works that way in our minds too. He was seen to have everything. He was a man. In that society, in that time, men had the place of importance and dominance. Children, women, others were seen as less than. He had everything going for him. And yet, we know what happens. He walks away sad. Man, the disciples must have been looking at him saying, we found a new disciple, sign this guy up. They were probably there with the brochure saying, let's make him the chair of the CE committee. Maybe he can run the youth ministry. This is the kind of person that we want traveling with us. But Jesus sees something different. Who's the right person for your church? Who walks through your door off the streets of Charlottetown that you look and say, ah, that's the kind of person that we want? And I know that if I were to actually ask you that, you would say anyone, and that's the right answer. (laughs) But sometimes we fail to live that out. Sometimes in the moment where we catch ourselves prejudices that might live in the back of our minds, sometimes that we actively suppress and try to work to overcome with the Lord's help, rear their ugly head, and we fail to live up to the call to love everyone as ourselves. 
So he asks Jesus this question. He says, good teacher. It's a very funny interaction. If you've ever read this account before, this part may have confused you. It confused me for many, many years. I was thankful for the opportunity to study this. I don't know if I have it fully figured out, but here's what I'm going to say to you. He says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Before Jesus deals with the second part of that question, which probably would think is the most important part of that question, he deals with the first statement. Why do you call me good? There's a few things that are going on here. One, this guy is calling Jesus good in that he's almost trying to call himself good. Hey, Jesus, buddy, buddy, great Jesus, good Jesus, my friend Jesus, I want to come and follow. Remember, this is happening in front of a crowd of people. This is not a private conversation that's going on. And there's just this little bit of an air of puffing himself up. So Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Only God is good. A little bit of foreshadowing here because we know now as we look back on it, this man's going to claim that he himself is actually really good. He followed all the laws. But also the foreshadowing that Mark wants us to see of only God is good. And if you call me good, who do you say I am? Jesus is teasing us with that question as he heads to the cross. So Jesus asks his questions and the reply comes from the man. Jesus lists the ten, uh, well, not all the Ten Commandments. He lists five of the Ten Commandments. And it's meant to be seen not exclusive. There's a little bit of debate as to why he lists only these five, not all of them. I have a thought about that. We'll get to that in a second. But it's really meant to Jesus' a shorthand way of saying, well, you know the law, right? You know this one, this one, this one. I, we can't go in the mall. There's hundreds of laws, and, you know, these are the big ones. Jesus is affirming the place of the law. And the man's breathed a sigh of relief. Oh, I've done them all. Now that is a bold claim. He is making this claim in his community in front of everybody that's known him since he was a boy. I would not go back to my hometown and stand up and say, I've kept all the commandments which, since I was a boy because I know there'd be people in the congregation that said, uh, actually, we have some notes on that. Um, maybe not so much. But this is the claim that he makes. And then we get to this, this sentence right at the middle where it pivots. In the second act, it's the climax. It's a moment where Jesus looks at him and what does Scripture say? He loved him. Church, when you are dealing with people, when you are ministering to each other, is your first reaction to love them. In that moment when you're at a business meeting and you got your head in your hand because you're going on again about how much you're spending on finances, and that person, you know who they are, is talking, and you're just like, oh, is your first inclination to love them. It needs to be. This is how Jesus, before Jesus pushes back, before he encounters this man really in a deep way, before he tries to help him, to provide him a way to actually find salvation, his heart is broken for him. Lord, help break our hearts for the things and the people that break yours. So Jesus gently pushes back on this. He doesn't go toe-to-toe and say, okay, well, let's talk about the stealing, let's list some things. No, he doesn't take that approach. 
Jesus says something a little bit strange. And again, if you've come across this passage, you may find this as strange as well. Jesus says, great, there's one thing for you to do. Take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. I find this strange because Jesus is telling this man to do something in order to find salvation. My understanding as a reader reading back now into the New Testament, and probably your understanding, is that salvation is by faith alone, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But Jesus is telling this guy he has to do something. Is Jesus adding an extra step, an extra barrier to him or works to all of us in order to find salvation? I don't think that's his purpose here. Jesus, in telling this man to go do this, is laying bare to him that he hasn't been as good as he thought he has been. Some commentators, and I find this very interesting, and I probably would lean into this a little bit myself, say that the commandments that Jesus listed, the ones, the reasons why he may have picked that, may have been because as this man worked or his family worked to accumulate this wealth, that these may have been the commandments that he actually broke to do it. Do not steal. Do not lie. Don't give false witness. Don't murder. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. In the acquisition of this great wealth that he had, had he committed murder, the man might have said, well, no, I've never killed anybody. But we know Jesus is teaching on this. Jesus says, even if you look at your brother and are angry with him, then you have committed murder in your heart. Jesus is concerned not only with the outward action, but the heart condition as well. And the reason why I think that there's probably some validity in this is because he doesn't push back against Jesus. When Jesus shows him this, when he says, tell me about your money, the man gets sad he makes the connection that maybe in the way that he has gone to seek his riches was not in line with the way God called him to. But does this still provide a barrier for salvation? No, not really. You see, the law and the understanding as we go through and read through Romans and through the teachings in the New Testament, we are come to realize that the law was given as a measuring stick as a way of saying, you want to find salvation, then here's how you have to live. Here is what perfection looks like. As a way for people to say, to look at it and to see if they measure up. And in the reality, none of us do. And in that moment, Jesus, in asking his question, was reflecting back to this guy saying, are you sure? Part of the work in our lives is the Spirit. Our brothers and sisters, our community, gently showing us areas in our life that need attention, where we don't maybe measure up. And when we first become Christians, when we first start a journey of faith, a lot of times that's easy to identify those areas. We're a little rough around the edges. But if you're a person who has been following in the ways of Jesus for a long time, it can become easy to be complacent because those areas where we need to work aren't so evident to us. 
get the plank out of your eye, Jesus says, before you deal with the speck of sawdust and someone else's. We have a community of people, and that's one of the reasons the importance of the church is the importance of deep relationships in church, not just a Sunday morning, how you doing, good to see you kind of church, but a church that actually lives, lives with each other, that knows each other, that has the relationship to say, Patrick, I need to talk to you about something. Love first, leaning into that relationship. So the response of the man is that he is sad and he leaves. And this is a huge plot twist in the narrative because we're led to believe that he was going to find what he was looking for. We ran into person after person after person in the scripture when you read up to this point who found Jesus. People who were lame, people who couldn't see, people who couldn't walk, people who were dead, and they found Jesus. They found healing, and they found forgiveness. They found validation. Jesus lifted them up, said, we are equal in Christ, brothers and sisters. But this man, this man who the world would have seen, and the church, the Christian community at the time would have seen as having it all together, he is the first person who walks away, sad and without it. But why? Two reasons. One, he realized that he was not as good as he thought. He didn't live up to those commandments. He saw himself in the measuring stick of the law. But the second one is that he didn't want to give up his wealth. This was not a logistical problem of trying to make a bunch of returns back to Amazon. That can be annoying. I get it. Sometimes you keep the sweater and you ordered and it came in. It wasn't quite right, but it's just too big of a hassle to send back. This was not this man's problem. His problem was he didn't want to give it up. There's a lot of things that can get in our way of our relationship with Jesus, and there are good things that we need to talk about and to consider. But Scripture is very clear that we cannot serve both God and money. And money has this way, I've talked and said before, that it likes to push itself in the driver's seat of our lives. It likes to be the main thing we talk about when we make decisions together. I don't know how things work here. I'm sure it's different, but in other churches that I've been part of, a lot of times when we come to business meetings, try to figure out ministry directives, what we are and what we are not going to be or do, one of the main driving concerns is our finances. And I get that. The Lord has entrusted us, when we were taught in Scripture, to be wise stewards of what He has given, to use it faithfully, to do what He wants, but it can't be a barrier. We launched this chair, the William Oliver chair. Normally when academic institutions do this, they have a big rich donor in the back who gives a bunch of money and they do this thing. We didn't do that with this. We started with zero dollars. Because I believe, we believe, that we serve a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That as long as we are living in what he's calling us to do, he has promised us he will give us everything we need to do his will. We like to think that he'll give us everything that we want, that we think we need to do His will. That's not what Scripture says. It says He'll provide all of our needs. His love of money, which the Scripture tells us is the root of evil, not money itself, but the love of money, allowing money to dictate our actions and not the will of God is the root of evil, prevented him from following Jesus. And at the end, I don't know about you, but I'm left wondering how sincere he was when he first came, when he threw himself down and made the big spectacle, what must I do to be saved? Was he really looking for Jesus to correct him? Because that's what he was asking for. 
Or was he asking Jesus to just affirm the way that he was already living and call it good enough? Church, we have to be in a posture in our lives to actually allow the Spirit to correct us. I don't know many things. I work with a lot of really smart people. I am not one of those people. They don't let me near a classroom. But I work with a lot of smart people. But the one thing that I have learned and the one thing that I know is I've not met a perfect person yet. As I go from church to church, community to community, meeting people, talking about the things I talk about, I've not met a perfect person. The work of the Lord is not done in us, but we can block that work of the Spirit sometimes. We need to adopt a posture to say to the Spirit, show me, tell me, whatever way you're going to do that, how, what do I need to be doing? What areas of my life need attention to grow closer to you? How can we go about claiming that we love our neighbors as we go about our daily lives? Complacency and apathy are sometimes two of the greatest evils in our world today. One theologian put it this way, what we ignore, disregard, turn a blind eye to, or sweep under the carpet becomes the things that we implicitly endorse. And it can be overwhelming when we're looking at how do we love our neighbor, how do we use the finances of your church, of you individually, to do God's will in this place, in Charlottetown, in your province of PEI, and beyond. The thing that I want to offer you this morning in closing is, is this, is that you don't have to do it alone. Sometimes we can feel very small in a big broken system, but the Lord has established his church as the way for us to gather together, not to passively sit back, but for us to advance so that the kingdom or the gates of hell will not prevail. That is the church advancing on the things that are broken and wrong with this world in Jesus' name and in his power. The scene after this, there's kind of a post-credit scene almost. You watch a Marvel movie, you stay through all the things to see the teaser at the end. We get a post-credit scene here of the disciples saying, how is this even possible then, Jesus? If you say that it's easier for a camel to squeeze through an eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. How is it possible? And here's the good news that I want to leave with you and to encourage you with as you allow the Spirit that room to wrestle, to show, and to convict you and me in the ways that we use our finances. Jesus says this, he said, with people, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The man asked the wrong question, and sometimes we ask the wrong question. What must I do to be saved? Jesus' answer is, you can't. There's no way for you to do enough to be saved. Salvation is a gift from God. As we continue to remember these things in the middle of our struggle and our wrestling, I want you to remember to be good stewards to allow the Spirit that room to show how you are using your finances in ways that may be in line with God or not, and to always remember that with God all things are possible. You've been listening to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a weekly ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. Our theme music is inspired by Ben Sound. 
For more information or to support the ministries of FBC Charlottetown, please visit our website, myfbc.ca today. If you found the content of today's podcast encouraging, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop us a comment. In addition, consider sharing today's Rooted and Reaching podcast with at least one other person this week who might be blessed through it or become better biblically rooted through it. Until next time, thank you for listening.